Psalm 16. Would you turn with me to Psalm 16? Sometimes we'll say something totally ridiculous and then say, that's my story, I'm sticking to it. And the fact is, all of us have a story. In uh, sacred terms, Christian terms, we call it a testimony. And we've been hearing the psalmist testify all semester long, and a lot of it has been lament. By one reckoning, 58 of the 150 psalms are laments, the largest subgroup of psalms in the Psalter. And we're in book one. And when you start going through book one, you discover that about 22 of the 41 psalms, or over half of them are laments, and 37 of the 41 psalms were written by David. So you kind of get the feeling that David was lamentable. Uh, That is, he bared his soul in front of people. Most of his psalms are addressed to the choir director for public worship. And that he had a lot to lament. That is, God put him in a high-profile position and then put a target on his chest. And he had a lot of enemies and a lot of trials and a lot of temptations. And so I am delighted to tell you that Psalm 16 is by David and it's not a lament. It's entirely happy. It's one of the happiest psalms in the Psalter. It's one of six psalms that are, have been categorized as confessions of trust. If you're interested, the others are 11, 23, which, which is famous, 62 and 63, which are beautiful, and 91, which is beautiful. I like to call these psalms testimony psalms, where a writer is just overflowing. And I love hearing testimonies. When I was an assistant pastor for about nine years, Uh, There were a lot of wonderful things about serving in the local church, but one of the best was hearing testimonies from people who wanted to join the church. And you would hear all the different ways that God brings people to himself. Now, occasionally you'd hear a testimony and realize you need to win them to Christ. But usually it was a huge blessing. But our story doesn't stop the day after we get saved. That is, you and I have a story... And we've got a story to tell, and let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. And even though David has a lot to lament, he has a buoyant testimony about his relationship with Yahweh. Notice the title of the psalm. It's called a miktam of David. There are six psalms called, that have this miktam in the title. The other five are 56 through 60. The word miktam probably means, there's some debate, but it probably means golden. And so this psalm, because of the beautiful language it employs, has been called the golden psalm. And what I want to talk with you today about is having a golden testimony, having a testimony like David has. And notice how he begins. Your Bibles are opened at Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God. Preserve me, O God. David begins the psalm with, Lord, I have a great relationship with you, and I don't want to lose it. That is, I I want you to hold on to me. For, because, in thee do I put my trust. And that word trust is a word that means to take refuge in. I have taken refuge in you. Would you keep me? I'm aware that this is going to miss some of you, and I'm also aware that I may have to surrender my man card. But earlier this year, uh, seeking Husband of the Year Award honors, 
I agreed to read through Jane Eyre with my wife. Right? <laughs> and so we read it. And, and it was actually quite good. I, uh, all right, so yes, Mr. Huffstutler, I took your challenge. And, um, and we read, and, and Jane Eyre flees Rochester when he finds out that he's married to a crazy woman. And for a couple of days, she's wandering about, and she has no money, and nobody will be kind to her. And finally, she finds herself in the moors, and she's virtually dying, bedraggled. And night is falling, and she doesn't think she'll survive another night. And then she sees the light. And the rivers invite her into the Moore house, and she finds refuge there. And that's the picture I think David wants us to have in our minds, not Jane Eyre, but the idea that left to ourselves, we will wander, and we will not find refuge, and we will be bedraggled, and we will be navigating unknown terrain, and we will be avoiding the lightning strikes and the pelting rain and the darkness. But in the Lord we find refuge. And the cry of David's heart at the beginning of the psalm is, Lord, tuck me in and shelter me. That's where I will be able to experience the blessings of a golden testimony. And let me begin by saying, here we are, two and a half weeks from the end of the semester. And if you have been at Maranatha all this time, and you have never taken shelter in God, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ and found that place, you're still out there in the dark. You're, you're still wandering in the storm. And it's no place to live. But those who have taken refuge have a testimony. And so I want us to listen to David's golden testimony this morning. And then I want you to think about what testimony you have, what yours looks like, and how you could share it the way David does here. He has a testimony about three things. And by the way, if you have not taken refuge, talk to me or lots of people in this room today and let us show you how to flee to Christ. The first thing he testifies about is his exclusive devotion to God in verses 2 through 4. Let's read these verses. Oh, my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord. There it is. This is a simple declaration of allegiance. You are my Lord, and I don't want anybody else. Somebody's got to run my life. I would rather it be you. And frankly, that's not what most worldly people think. They kind of want to run their own lives. But you and I, who have taken refuge in God, discover that he runs our lives better than we run our lives. So, Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Adonai. You are my master. Now, why would you take your life and turn it over to somebody else to run? Who in their right mind does that? He explains it in the latter part of the verse, although it's, it's kind of tough. The Hebrew is a little bit clipped here. Uh, we read, my goodness extendeth not to thee. You see that the word extendeth is in italics. It literally says, my good not beyond you. My good not beyond you. Well, what does that mean? It probably means something like, I have no good beyond you, or you are all the good I need, or maybe best, I have no good apart from you. I have taken refuge in you. Preserve me, because I don't have any good in my life except you. So why is David happy to have Yahweh run his life? Because Yahweh is the good in his life. He delights in Yahweh. He's not just dedicated to Yahweh, he delights in Yahweh. Now, as you read through this psalm and all of David's psalms and the rest of the Bible, 
you realize that David enjoys a lot of goods. That is, he's blessed in many, many ways. So how can he say, I have no good apart from Yahweh? Is Yahweh really his only good? Well, you know how to answer this question, right? Let's quote Augustine in his confessions. Too little does he love you, Augustine says to God, who loves anything with you that he loves not for you. Or the way Paul puts it is, for of him and through him and to him are all things. That is, how is it that you and I enjoy any good we enjoy? Well, we enjoy them all because we're in the refuge. That is, we enter that refuge with Yahweh, and then he becomes now the supplier of every other good. And every other good I have, I have in reference to Yahweh. If I have anything in my life which is not enjoyed in reference to Yahweh, it's not good. He is my only good. So delighting in God is how we drive idols out of our lives. I've been struck this semester by how many pleas have been made to us from this chapel in different contexts, missionary presentations and sermons, about dethroning the idols and replacing them with Yahweh. What is the most effective way to do that? To delight in Yahweh, to prefer him to the idols, to want him to recognize that all the good in my life is in reference to him. Our greatest love will always win. And David loves Yahweh. Now notice how this dedication to Yahweh then spills out into his life. Verse 3. To the saints that are in the earth, the word butts in italics, to the saints in the earth and the excellent, they are all my delight. Yahweh is loved by David, and therefore Yahweh's people are loved by David. A, A commentator named Davis says the psalm assumes that if you delight in God, you will delight in his people. It's a biblical axiom. It's a biblical axiom. What kind of people do you enjoy most? What kind of people do you like to be around most? When I was uh, in college, I worked for a painter. And uh, there was this guy who worked with me, and his wife drug him to church every week. He, he was drugged to a Southern Baptist church every week. I don't know if the church was good or bad or whatever. It was, it was Southern Baptist. But he went fairly often, but he didn't have much of a Christian testimony on the workplace. And so we talked quite often. And one day, uh, kind of embarrassed, he said, you know, David, it's like this. I just don't enjoy fellowship. Now, I know what he meant. He meant that he doesn't enjoy sitting on folding chairs with people he doesn't know, eating pie and trying to make small talk. That's what he meant. But the truth of the matter is, that's a really bad sign. That is, if you don't enjoy fellowship, that fellowship is produced between me and other believers by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who gives us communion, the communion of the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 13, 14 speaks of. And it's, it's like we have found refuge in Yahweh, the light was on, and we came, and we were, we, we were entered into this relationship, and then we look around, and there are other people in there with us. And they're the same kind of people we are. They, they, they also have a testimony of being out in the world and being battered by the storm. And they've been rescued. And rescued people find that in common. They tend to love each other. So part of David's testimony is that these majestic saints, I love being around them. They do me good. They strengthen me. They challenge me. They bless me. 
I could spend the last 19 minutes here beginning to enumerate all the majestic saints that God has put in my life. That's part of my testimony. I can think of family and professors and friends and colleagues and co scattered over the years. And every one of them, we were huddled together in the refuge with Yahweh. And we couldn't help but be knit to one another. And that should be you. But, it, but there's a flip side to this. Notice verse 4. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. That is, he looks through the windows of the refuge, if you will, and he sees people out there in the storm, and they don't want the refuge. And David's heart's broken for them. Now, this is the one negative vibe in this whole psalm. And it's a broken-hearted David who says, man, I wish these people could find refuge with me. That is, they're, they're going to lead a miserable life. The gods these people are chasing just multiply your sorrows. They, they don't meet your true... Now, let, let's immediately recognize that David also wrote these laments, many of them. And he's not arguing that there is no sorrow inside the refuge. There is. Finding refuge doesn't automatically dry our eyes and, and give us some kind of Teflon coating from all the pains in this world. It doesn't work that way. Uh, Mr. Flegel eloquently made that point when he covered Psalm 88, right? But there are two different kinds of sorrow. There is sorrow that contains within it hope and a deep contentment. And then there is sorrow which has no hope because it is destined to get worse and worse and worse and culminate in eternal destruction. And so there's sorrow, and David knows that sorrow. But he can have that sorrow at the same time that he has the delight of being in refuge with Yahweh. And then there's sorrow for these people who are outside. Their sorrows shall be multiplied. And David says, you know what? My love for God means that I can't love them the same way I love the people in the refuge. Now, he has a love for them in that he wants them in the refuge with him. But he can't go out there to them into the storm where they're worshiping their idols. He says, their drink offerings of blood will I not offer. Now, we don't know what drink offerings of blood are. But it seems to be worship. David says, I can't worship with those people. They don't know Yahweh. We just don't have that in common. He says, nor take up their names into my lips. That probably speaks of close friendship, close fellowship. Now, you and I have this challenge. We are called of God not to live in greenhouses. We are called of God to evangelize, to be a friend of sinners the way Jesus Christ was. And yet, that is the way we are friends of sinners, by evangelizing them. And if they're evangelizing us, if they are drawing us out of our refuge into the storm to worship their gods and take their names on our lips, well, then we are sacrificing the fellowship with Yahweh that we should enjoy. David cannot be faithfully devoted to Yahweh if he's comfortable with people who have rejected Yahweh and worship other gods. So the first part of his testimony is, I hope, the first part of our testimony. And that is exclusive devotion to Yahweh. That results in dedication to and delight in Yahweh, devotion to Yahweh's people, and demarcation from Yahweh's enemies. But there's a second thing David testifies to. 
Notice his golden testimony that talks about the rich benefits he enjoys. Beginning of verse 5. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. I want you to notice some language he uses here. I don't know when the last time you read Joshua, but David's meditating on Joshua here. He uses the word portion, and he uses the word inheritance, and the word lot, and the word boundary lines, and the word pleasant areas or places, and the idea of goodly heritage. All of those are words that describe the inheritance of the land as Joshua led the people in and they conquered it. And David says, I may be from the tribe of Judah, but I've got the same kind of inheritance that the priests had, and that the Levites had. The Lord spake unto Aaron, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any part among them. I am thy part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. To the Levites, wherefore Levi hath no part nor inheritance with his brethren, the Lord is his inheritance, according as the Lord thy God promised him. David says, the Lord is my inheritance. The Lord is my cup. And that word seems to indicate blessing. Think Psalm 23, my cup runneth over. And so he's putting in concrete terms what he already expressed. I don't want land. I don't want cities. I don't want wealth. I don't want victory over my enemies. Apart from Yahweh, everything I want is in Yahweh's hands. And then he says, thou maintainest my lot. What does that speak to you of? You know one of the problems with earthly things? They break. They rust. They wear out. They become outdated. You have to replace them. All right? Your heart falls in love with an iPhone, and guess what? They're going to come out with a new model, like in eight days. (laughs) Everything this world offers is temporal and temporary. And to that extent, it can't satisfy. Yahweh says, my inheritance is safe with you. You maintain my lot. I don't have to worry about losing this refuge. It's eternal. And then he says, the lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. Now let's make sure we interpret this correctly. Because I've heard this verse quoted by people who are doing really well. You know, I, I've got a good job and a good paycheck and my, my kids all love me and I've got a beautiful wife and, and you know, I've got everything the world has to offer. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. What is the goodly heritage that David is talking about in verse 6? Oh yeah, it's chapel. I can't wait. Yahweh is. Yahweh is the goodly heritage. Yahweh is his only good. And so when he says the lines have fallen on me in pleasant places, he doesn't mean I have a Ferrari and a summer home and no debts. He means he's got a right relationship with Yahweh. Oh, that's the pleasant place. That's the inheritance. And he can have that right in the middle of a lament. You know, he can be enjoying Yahweh when everything else seems to be falling apart. David didn't write this psalm on a sunshiny day and write the laments when he was sorrowing. No, he had Yahweh while he was sorrowing. And that's his golden testimony. 
That can be our golden testimony. He not only enjoys Yahweh, but he receives counsel from Yahweh. You still with me there in the text? Verse 7. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. How does David get counsel from the Lord? How do you get counsel from the Lord? David gets it the same way. For the most part. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Same word that's used here. Instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord. That is, he gets counsel from the Lord. Psalm 107.11. Because they rebelled against the words of God and contemned, or held in contempt, the counsel of the Most High. Psalm 119.24. Thy testimonies, David wrote, are my, I think David wrote Psalm 119, are my delight and my counselors. David says, when I went into that refuge, I discovered that I didn't have to figure out life anymore. I just had to listen to Yahweh. I just needed to obey his word. I just have to follow his plan. I just have to be in right relationship with him. And then guess what? A lot of that stuff I used to stress over takes care of itself. That is, if I'm in right relationship with him and obeying him, well, then I don't need to worry about where I'm going to be in 10 years. Yahweh's got it covered. This so fills David with confidence. Notice what he says at the end of verse 7. My reins, my innermost thoughts, my deepest self instructs me in the night seasons. You ever have a hard time going to sleep? We, we had a small group at our house last night, and we served coffee, and you got to drink coffee when you're fellowshipping, but I don't drink caffeinated coffee at that time of day very often. And so my reins instructed me in the night seasons last night. Not that long. It wasn't that bad. But what a great use of insomnia, right? That is, the Lord is my counselor, and then I've got so much counsel from the Lord that when I wake up in the middle of the night, we can testify. The Lord can continue speaking to me. That is, he can instruct me from his word. That is, I'm continually being informed by him because I have taken refuge in him. And then thirdly, we have stability from the Lord. Verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. This is the fourth time that he has referred directly to Yahweh. David's testimony is not about David. David's testimony is about Yahweh. Verse 2, Yahweh's my Lord. Verse 5, Yahweh's my inheritance. Verse 7, Yahweh gives me counsel. And verse 8, I keep my eyes always on Yahweh. I am always looking to him. A.A. A. Hodge wrote a biography of his dad, Charles Hodge, who was a 19th century theologian. And Charles Hodge talked about when he was a little boy. As far back as I can remember, he said, I had the habit of thanking God for everything I received and asking him for everything I wanted. If I lost a book or any of my playthings, I prayed that I might find it. I prayed walking along the streets in school and out of school, whether playing or studying. I did not do this in obedience to any prescribed rule. It seemed natural. I thought of God as an everywhere present being, full of kindness and love, who would not be offended if children talked to him. Is that naive? Is that childish? Or is that childlike? Is that having the Lord always before you? Not walking through the day, careless of the refuge, the one through whom all our good will come. He says, the Lord is at my right hand. He is my advocate. He is my defender. 
I shall not be moved. I shall not be displaced. I shall not be shaken. Cast thy burden on the Lord. He will sustain me. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad. I'm glad, literally. My glory rejoices. I rejoice, literally. My flesh rests in hope. I hope. That is, he's not talking about three different parts of him having three different experiences. He's saying all of him has gladness, glory, and hope. Rejoicing in God. How are you doing? How's your testimony this morning? You say, oh, I'm back. It was, it was, last week was great. Praise God you can be back. We prayed for you to have safe travel back. Well, you did. We're praying for you to finish well. By God's grace, you can. Take refuge in the everlasting God. And he will meet the needs of your heart. And David believes that. Because he now talks about his confident expectations. He not only has this dedication to Yahweh alone and rich benefits that come from being in the refuge, but he knows things are going to go well. He's confident, in particular, in death. Verse 10. At the end of 9, he said, My flesh shall rest and hope. Verse 10, because, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, or literally Sheol. You will not leave me in Sheol. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now, Sheol, in the Old Testament, basically refers to where dead people go, which means it can sometimes refer to the grave, sometimes refer to the afterlife, both good or bad. Here, he uses the word corruption. Well, that's what happens to bodies in the grave. So David here is expressing hope in an afterlife. He's saying, I'm not going to be abandoned in death. I'm going to live on beyond death. I don't know exactly what he understood. We don't know exactly what Old Testament saints understood. But they knew that this life was not all. Because they have an eternal refuge. And that eternal refuge is not going to go away just because this mortal life ends. And then he talks about his confidence now in an abundant life. Verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. There it is, direction from God again. I need the path that leads to life. Will you show it to me? In thy presence is fullness of joy. He lives his life coram Deo, in the presence of God. And he finds that when he is there, he is filled with joy. And then he says, at thy right hand. So the Lord is at his right hand defending him and his advocate, and now he's at the Lord's right hand in the closest possible connection. Our pleasures forevermore. What did Jim Elliot say? He is no fool. He gives what he cannot keep. To keep what he cannot lose. There are pleasures forevermore available in Yahweh. And we trade them for stuff for corruptible stuff, for things that can't fully satisfy. I, am, I venture to say, and I'm no prophet, that if any of you blows it, as Dr. Marriott begged you not to do in the next two weeks, it'll be because something got your attention that you thought would meet your needs and satisfy you rather than Yahweh. And it won't. It's not capable of it. David has a testimony here that, you know what? I know God's going to keep me forever. 
because he's a forever pleasure. In order to enjoy these pleasures forever, I need to be in Yahweh in life and in death. Now, I must tell you that Peter and Paul read this psalm and saw implications that I would have missed. They help us understand how David's testimony can be golden. Peter quotes 16, 8 through 11, almost this whole end of the psalm, on the day of Pentecost. Peter of Pentecost says, David had this hope, but he died, and he was buried, and his body's still languishing in the grave. Peter noticed something in this psalm that would be easy to miss. David refers to himself in the first person 25 times in 11 verses. And when we give testimonies, that's what we usually do. This happened to me, I did this. Once, and only once, he uses the third person. And that is, you will not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. And Peter says, David is still in the grave. But the Holy One, he rose again. He conquered the grave. He triumphed over death and hell. Being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. Then Paul fleshes this out even more at Pisidian Antioch, Acts 13. He quotes the same text. Wherefore, he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Now don't misunderstand Peter or Paul. David is going to rise again. David is not going to be abandoned to the grave. But what's their point? The only reason David can rise is because his greater son, the Holy One, rose. Christ's resurrection is why we have hope. Christ's resurrection is why we can enter the refuge. Christ's resurrection is why we can have pleasures forevermore. That is, every blessing that Yahweh promises us is ours in Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. And Peter and Paul don't want us to miss that. I'll quote Davis one more time. If God's favored one will not see decay, if he triumphs over death, that of course all Messiah's people can have assurance of victory in the face of death. And that victory reaches even our flesh. For God will not abandon us to Sheol, but will bring us along with Jesus in resurrection. The text says to those sharing David's faith, because Yahweh is at your right hand, you will never be shaken. And that means never shaken by death, because Yahweh's favored one has conquered it. What a testimony. That is, I'm Yahweh's and he's mine. He gives me amazing benefits. And that means I have an incredible future. Confidence, even in the face of death, that I have pleasures forevermore. What's your testimony? Is your testimony golden? Is Yahweh your only good? Thank you, Lord, for this text. Thank you for the testimony that David shares with us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy One, his greater son, who conquered death once and for all so that we can enjoy all of these rich benefits. And Lord, there are people in this gym, no doubt, who are also right now in lament psalms. 
Perhaps all of us are in one degree or another. But I pray that we would have confidence in our refuge, that we will know that even with our tears, we have good, and we have that good because we have you, and you are our only good and the source of all our good. And I pray that if there's even one person here who has never taken refuge in you, Lord, they shall have multiplied sorrows, and we don't desire that for them. I pray that they would come to faith in you, that they would trust in you. And thank you that all who find refuge in you, you preserve and protect and guide. Thank you, Lord, that you are sufficient. And I pray all these things in Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.